Hey everyone, I have a quick note before we start. Uh, I've made some changes to the volume levels in the output of the show. Uh, this note is coming to you at the same levels as old episodes, so if you've just been listening to an old episode and arrived at this one, then just watch your ears because it's about to get quite a bit louder. This is Medieval Death Trip for Saturday, February 18th, 2017, episode 36, concerning the depredations of King John. Hello and welcome to Medieval Death Trip, the podcast where we explore the wit and weirdness of medieval texts. I'm your host, Patrick Lane. We're finally back for our first episode of 2017. Uh, Maybe a little bit late, uh, but hey, not as late as last year. Um, I'm trying to look on the bright side. Part of the reason for the delay is that I kept changing the texts I wanted to start us out with. I've been struggling with the question of relevance and how far to pursue it and to what advantage. Obviously, we're in a moment heavily charged with politics right now. Uh, This moment's so charged, its hair is standing straight out from its body. It has both hands planted on the Van de Graaff generator, and electricity is arcing up Jacob's ladders all around it. There is a strong activist call in much of the humanities community, and some of the arguments about how being silent is being complicit can cut deep. Moreover, in this show, we are dealing with history. You know, if this were a video games review podcast, uh, there might be a better claim that engaging in political discussion is unnecessary or distracting. Uh, But there's no way to say political ideas are irrelevant to a look at medieval history. Now, I do still conceive of this show fundamentally as a literature podcast rather than a history podcast. Or more precisely, it's a history as literature podcast. But obviously, in the practical work of creating episodes, uh, I end up spending a lot of time talking about history and ideology. It's not all narratologies I'd half-fancied I might be able to make it uh, way back when I was starting out. But here's the thing about drawing connections between medieval history and the present moment. While there may be some broad universals in there about power and oppression and human nature that transcend the specific historical context, there are also a lot of important specific details within that context, and man, has that context changed over a thousand years. And when you have people debating which ideological side Abraham Lincoln would be on today, uh, how can we even begin to draw comparisons to figures from a profoundly more distant state of society? Or really, to cut to the chase, what I found was that any text I might select uh, that I thought offered a critical commentary on, well, specifically Trump's politics, uh, provided more than enough details that could almost or maybe even more easily be interpreted as lending support to those same politics. So to make any kind of point myself, either I would have to steamroll over those inconvenient counter details and cherry pick moments to produce the desired reading, or I'd have to equivocate and hedge and waffle so much that it barely seemed worth making the point at all. And, you know, a third option, just staying silent on current politics, uh, strikes me as being weirdly off-putting, like playing coy or cryptic, 
Uh, and frankly, I'm more concerned about that being misinterpreted as an attempt to conceal my own political positions. So I'll just establish right now so that hopefully there's no ambiguity later on about what principles I might be endorsing, especially since I'll be reading and have already read a lot of texts here that have deeply regressive views. Uh, so my politics are liberal. Uh, I find both Donald Trump's proposed policies and his conduct in the office so far pretty horrible. Um, I am a natural skeptic, uh, and I applied that skepticism to the worst of the doom and gloom predictions that came out right after the election. Um, but whatever measures of benefit of the doubt I may have had going into this year uh, have more than been used up already. But that established... Uh, I'm not going to flip the switch into full activist mode. I don't intend to shy away from drawing connections to current politics when it seems warranted, but I think I would drive myself a bit mad if I tried to employ that lens all or even just most of the time. And anyway, I rather think the more useful lessons of medieval history and medieval rhetoric really apply in a longer view, and there's definitely a degree of forcing it uh, when you try to bend them to fit specific current policy debates or specific individuals in the present moment. But I did think for this first episode of the Trump presidency, I'd give you a case study in what makes drawing neat comparisons difficult. Today, we're going to be hearing one account of the reign of King John, a king whose general reputation has not been positive, uh, though there have been a number of efforts over time to rehabilitate it. Um, I'd wager Richard III has managed to get better PR than John at this point. John's bad image begins with his attempt to usurp his brother Richard I in England while Richard was away fighting in the Third Crusade, and then later when Richard was captured and held for ransom by Leopold V, Duke of Austria. This period, from around 1190 up to Richard's return in 1194, is the setting for most modern Robin Hood stories. This is the reign of greedy, tyrannical, petulant Prince John. <coughs> If I may, may venture an opinion, you're not your usual cheerful genial self today. I, I know, I know. You haven't counted your money for days. Hmm? It always makes you so happy. <laughs> Sire, taxes are pouring in, the jail is full, and... And, oh, I have good news, sir. Friar Tuck is in jail. Friar Tuck? It's Robin Hood I want, you idiot! Oh, I'd give all my gold if I could just get my hands. Did you say Friar Tuck? Did I? Oh, yes, I did. Oh, it's... I have it. I'll use that fat fryer as bait to trap Robin Hood. Another trap? Yes, yes, you stupid serpent. Friar Tuck will be led to the gallows in the village square, don't you see? Sire, hang Friar Tuck, a man of the church? Yes, my reluctant reptile. And when our elusive hero tries to rescue the corpulent cleric, <laughs> my men will be ready. Ha <laughs> ha! Now, John's place in the Robin Hood mythos, would we say mythos? Maybe just tradition? 
is really a late Victorian and 20th century phenomenon. The Sheriff of Nottingham, as Robin's nemesis, is a relationship that is part of the earliest Robin Hood text that we have, but Prince John and the whole waiting for Richard the Lionheart to return to England and restore true law and order, uh, that motif is really a feature of later texts of the 19th and 20th centuries, uh, namely Walter Scott's Ivanhoe, and then, of course, the contributions of Errol Flynn and Walt Disney. After Richard's death in 1199, John became king, and in a very Richard III-like act, is believed to have murdered his nephew Arthur, the other major claimant to the throne. His rule was marked by conflict with his feudal barons in England, leading to open rebellion, and conflict with the King of France, ultimately resulting in John's losing Normandy. His son and successor, Henry III, would actually be the one to finally give up the title of Duke of Normandy in 1259. The wars John fought to try to keep his continental possessions were expensive, and he taxed and levied his barons to their limits, hence the rebellion. And the initial salvos in that conflict also led to the drafting of Magna Carta in 1215, as a statement against absolute monarchy. So the general outlines of King John the Tyrant are laid out, with the parallel image of King John the Failure, since his reign ends up being a series of concessions to other powers. Descriptions of his personality by both contemporary and later chroniclers are also unflattering. The petulant, hot-headed, grown-up child that we see in Disney's version isn't too far off from how chroniclers described him. He was especially known for making sneering and insulting jokes uh, at people, and a good number of the disasters in his career derived directly from his refusal to compromise on anything he individually desired, even if it was going to make enemies of former allies and people that he needed on his side in order to attain his larger goals. John was also specifically criticized for taking advice and counsel not from his barons and great council, but preferring uh, the advice from members of his royal household and inner circle, his familiaris. Being in or out of royal favor had huge political consequences for people, um, which was standard for the age, but John was especially capricious in who was elevated and who was condemned, um, and then who was restored to favor and who fell out of favor again. He treated friends as bitter enemies, and then as friends again, with dizzying turnover. Or at least, that's the common portrayal. I'm actually not going to go into more detail about John's character right now, because as I was looking into the sources to pull out a few little snippets illustrating it, um, I just found too much stuff that's too good to be merely footnotes in a single episode. So look for more King John-centered episodes as the year goes on. Uh, Instead... Our text for today gives us a portrait of John on the warpath. It's a bit more of a long-distance portrait than some of the others, but I think it's a good starting point. The conflict that kicks off in 1215 is the First Barons' War, led by a faction of largely northern English barons against King John. We've looked at the Second Barons' War in our Simon de Montfort episodes, which set the barons against John's son, Henry III, and his son, Edward. The complaints are typical— Some grand language about rights and tyranny and malign foreign influences in the royal court, but underlying all of this is fundamentally financial hardship. The broad strokes of the Barons' War are outlined in our excerpt for today, which comes from the 13th century Melrose Chronicle. Uh, This chronicle has a point of view focused on Scottish and Northern English matters, and so we see the war here through a Northern lens, with particular emphasis on the actions of Alexander II, the young king of Scotland. Uh, He was around 18 years old at the time, Um, and he'd only been crowned a little over a year before uh, the events of today's passage. 
I think the narrative of the war we get here is easy enough to follow, um, even if it's not very comprehensive. So I just have a couple of explanatory notes. First, one of the common features of early Anglo-Norman or Angevin royal power was a strong reliance on armies of mercenaries to support their faction in wars. Um, I'll confess I'm still not quite well-versed enough in early feudalism to explain to you exactly why this was the case, uh, but I have to imagine it's at least partly linked to not being able to rely on the full loyalty of native Englishmen, especially when your two main categories of war are either putting down rebellions by barons in discontented parts of the country, uh, or fighting to claim or defend lands on the continent, which English soldiers have no particular patriotic imperative to fight for. Anyway, we get a glimpse of this practice in the first half of the story today. We also have a biblical allusion here that might need some footnoting. The text refers to the figure of Ahithophel, or as our source has it, Achitophel, uh, using the Vulgate version. Um, uh, this is a person who appears in 2 Samuel as one of King David's wisest counselors, uh, who deserts him to join up with Absalom's rebellion. He then tries to offer counsel to Absalom, but God, acting through David, uh, who secretly sends his own mole into the rebel faction to undermine Ahithophel, gets Absalom to ignore Ahithophel's, uh, as near as I can tell, good advice. And then Ahithophel, ashamed, goes home and hangs himself. Rabbinical commentaries paint Ahithophel as a genuinely wise man who is punished for not being humble in his wisdom. Medieval Christian commentators tended to see in Ahithophel a prefiguration of Judas Iscariot. As a reference, he's an example of the betrayer, uh, an impression that I'm guessing is reinforced by the couple of apparent references to Ahithophel in the Psalms um, instead of his appearance in 2 Samuel. Uh, in the Psalms, he's addressed as the friend who has betrayed me, David, uh, the author of the Psalms. In today's text, he's even more specifically referred to in terms of being an evil counselor offering disastrous advice, uh, which, as far as I can tell, doesn't really jibe with the actual narrative of 2 Samuel. Um, but I'll admit I found the motivations in the biblical story a little hard to follow. Um, oh, and finally, uh, we do have another all-too-typical anti-Semitic aside uh, appearing in this text today, um, and I just didn't want that to pass unremarked on, um, though I don't really have anything else to say about it right now. I'm going to read two passages, uh, one from the entry for 1215, and then skipping a bit to the start of the entry for the year 1216. Um, the first is actually a bit of verse that has been incorporated into the Chronicle, or as our translator, Joseph Stevenson, puts it, quote, These two paragraphs are the translation of a poetical rhapsody, hence the obscurity of their diction. Uh, I don't think it's all that bad, um, but you can hear some faint echoes of poetic repetition and variation, such as we've encountered before in the poetry embedded in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. So let's get to it. Here is the account of the first half of the First Baron's War from the Melrose Chronicle, as translated by Joseph Stevenson.
from the account of the year 1215. A new state of things begun in England, such a strange affair as had never before been heard, for the body wished to rule the head, and the people desired to be masters over the king. The king, it is true, had perverted the excellent institutions of the realm, and had mismanaged its laws and customs and misgoverned his subjects. His inclination became his law. He oppressed his own subjects. He placed over them foreign mercenary soldiers, and he put to death the lawful heirs of whom he had obtained possession as his hostages while an alien seized their lands. The knights were summoned to discuss the matter with the king, but they consulted their own safety and came armed. With one consent they swore that they would no longer endure the tyranny of this ungrateful king. When they assembled on the first day, they were willing to submit to the law, but the king delayed to meet them and would not stand to the right. He fixed a second day at a future time, but neither did he keep that appointment. They, however, assembled with the intention of compelling him to do so. They now demand that he shall be deposed unless he make a thorough reform in the laws and give good security that he keep the peace inviolate. They tendered back to him the homage which they had previously made, and the barons took up the cause of the knights. They then arranged themselves in seven troops and took possessions of the lands, cities, farms, and castles. They who sided with the king ravaged the lands of these persons, and thus innumerable evils occurred on both sides. And the longer this state of hostility continued, the more men were slain, the greater was the loss which was incurred. At last, a form of peace was concluded on both sides, for although they earnestly desired that the older laws of the realm should be restored to them, they were unwilling to lay violent hands upon the king, and they demanded that the king should give his entire assent to this. But he refused to do so at first, and left them. But at length he was compelled to make every concession, and in order to secure his own safety from the troops, he promised that he would observe whatever they required of him. Thus the entire treaty was reduced to writing by both parties, and they requested that the king would affix his seal to it. He quietly promised that he would do so, Yet, after considerable delays, he expressed his wish that they should meet him at Oxford. Having assembled his troops, the king kept his appointment, but there gainsaid the articles of peace. Hereupon the barons departed in great indignation, and so the last mistake was worse than the former. The king hereupon adopted a new mode of doing mischief. Instigated by some Achitophel, by whom it is not known, he resolved that he would entirely eradicate from England all those of English descent, and that he would give the country to be perpetually held by foreign nations. But he who is the king of kings and lord of lords, and whose decree can never be set aside, had decreed otherwise. For he in his mercy freed the innocent ones, and wonderfully brought to naught the council of Achitophel. For while one of the king's party, who was in the parts beyond the sea, whose name was Hugh de Bovis, had assembled a very large fleet of ships and had filled them to overflowing with countless numbers of evil-disposed persons, it happened that when, upon the 6th of the Calends of October, this same Hugh, with all that multitude of ships, had sailed for England, at the command of the great king the waves of the sea arose, and not only did the leader of this piece of wickedness sink like lead to the bottom of the raging billows, but all those wicked ones by whom he was accompanied were suddenly drowned, so that out of the entire number of the ships, scarce one reached the shore for which they were bound. The greedy sea waves swallowed up as well the sailors and the passengers as the ships themselves, and only a very few were saved, who, after a long continued exposure to the violence of the tempestuous winds and with great difficulty, 
escaped the great danger of their critical position, and it is believed that they would not even then have been delivered had they not repented them of the crime which they had planned, and with sincere compunction of heart had sought forgiveness of him who rules over the powers of the deep and whom the sea and the winds obey. With tears and weeping, they made a vow that they would undertake the holy journey to Jerusalem, and they mutually received upon their own bodies the sign of the Holy Cross. Blessed be God over all, who did not refrain from inflicting merited punishment upon the misbelievers and the obstinate, and yet who calmed down the power of the mighty deep for those who repented themselves and entreated for pardon. Anno Domini, 1216. In the month of January, there occurred an unprecedented destruction of villes and towns in Northumberland and in the southern parts of Scotland. For King John, having heard that Alexander, the King of the Scots, had laid claim to Northumberland and had received the homage of the barons of that district, took with him his mercenary soldiers and marched towards Scotland with great energy. As soon as his advance was known to the barons of Yorkshire, who had taken an oath against him, they were so terrified that they fled for protection to the King of Scotland. And when they reached his presence, they did homage to him, and one and all of them swore fealty to him and gave him security upon the relics of the saints upon the third of the Ides of January in the chapter house of the monks of Melrose. The King of England followed up upon their track, and in his revenge devastated their villes and towns and estates and farms with fire and sword. For these barons had themselves burnt up their own bills and corn before the king's arrival, with the intention that when he came, he might have no assistance from thence, so that between the two, a large portion of the district was destroyed by fire. For the town of Wark was burnt down on the 3rd of the Ides of January, Annick on the 5th of the same, Mitford and Morpeth on the 7th of the Ides of the same, and on the 17th of the Calends of February, Roxborough with its surrounding villages and the larger portion of its outskirts. On the 18th of the Calends of February, King John took the town and castle of Berwick, where he and his mercenary soldiers conducted themselves with unparalleled ferocity and inhuman tyranny. For as many men and women as these slaves of the devil could secure, they hung up by the joints of their hands and feet, and subjected them to torments of all kinds, but of the greatest intensity, for the sake of plunder. It is reported that they took with them several Jews to instruct them in this wickedness. Marching onwards, he burnt down Haddington on the third day, and he committed to the devouring flame Dunbar and other towns in that same district. Upon his return, his mercenaries, these ministers of the devil, pillaged the Abbey of Coldingham, and afterwards burnt down the town of Berwick, the king himself setting them the example. Report says that he himself, with his own hand, disgracefully fired the house which had sheltered him, contrary to the habit of a king. In this same year, in the month of February, Alexander, King of the Scots, advanced with the whole of his powerful army upon the track of the King of England, and ravaged with fire and sword his land as far as Carlisle. But upon this occasion it is to be lamented that certain Scots, devils rather than soldiers, contrary to the wishes and express commands of the King, who had given firm peace to men of religion, in their accursed and sacrilegious madness pillaged the house of Holmcoltrum of everything upon which they could lay their hands, holy books, vestments, chalices, horses and cattle, utensils and garments, so that they even stripped to the skin a monk who was lying at his last gasp in the infirmary, taking from him the very rags which he had about him, nor did they exhibit any reverence to the holy altars. 
This sin, however, did not pass unpunished, for as they were returning with their prey, they were drowned in the river Eden, more than 1,900 Scotchmen in one short hour of the day, as nearly as can be reckoned. This was the merited punishment of God. In the same year, in the month of July, the King of Scotland marched towards Carlisle with the whole of his army, excepting the Scots from whom he took a money payment, and having laid siege to this town, it surrendered to him upon the 6th of the Ides of August. At this time, however, he did not obtain possession of the castle. Advancing onward from that point, he marched with the whole of his army through the very heart of England as far as Dover to meet Louis, the son of the King of France, King John all this time looking on in indignation. Louis had disembarked upon the second of the knowns of May this year from a large fleet which he had brought over at the instigation and for the assistance of the barons of England. At the very commencement of this expedition, Eustace de Vesci, the king's son-in-law, was killed at the siege of Barnard Castle. It must not be forgotten that as soon as Louis arrived in England, William Longsword, Earl of Salisbury, the brother of the King of England, and many others deserted the king and passed over to Louis. But the rebellion which afterwards broke out made it clear that they did this more in treachery than in love, more for the sake of injury than assistance. For at this time, when Alexander, King of the Scots, was residing in England, he did homage to this Louis at London, as is reported, in the same form as the barons of England had done to him and Louis himself and all the barons of England swore upon the holy gospels that they would never enter into any agreement for peace or truce with the king of England unless the king of Scots were included. Subsequent occurrences, however, will prove that this was not observed to the full. So there's the Melrose Chronicles synopsis of the First Barons War and a brief sketch of the temperament of King John. It serves as another example of the monastically equivocal view of warfare, where we really just get a survey of the horrors of war, with blame for various atrocities liberally handed out to all sides, rather than neatly distinguishing good guys from bad guys. Now, don't get me wrong, there are plenty of chronicles that do exactly that and present extremely one-sided accounts of conflicts, um, but this sort of counter-trend is uh, also more common than you might think. The Melrose Chronicle doesn't seem all that interested in the larger military movements or strategies of this conflict, and the narrative of the war after today's excerpts kind of devolves into a series of snapshots of individual battles and a lot of discussions about the roles of papal emissaries and other agents of the church trying to broker peace between the faction of Prince Louis of France and John's successor, Henry III. Because John dies in 1216, uh, a pretty major development in this war, since a lot of the various barons' loyalties swap around once there's a new king. But the Melrose Chronicle's notice of King John's death is rather perfunctory. Uh, after the passage I just read, the Chronicle goes on into a little catalog of the deaths and successions of various clerical offices, bishops and abbots, with, of course, particular emphasis on personnel changes at Melrose itself. And then, almost as an afterthought, it finishes the paragraph with this sentence. On the 17th of the Calends of November, in the same year, died John, King of England, at Newark. His bowels, having been removed, were buried at the Abbey of Croxton, but his body was conveyed to Worcester, and there interred in the monastery. It's a bit frustrating that the Melrose Chronicle just leaves it there. But what about this portrait of John? 
Yes, we get a picture of a king who is petty and spiteful, who tarnishes the presumed dignities of his office, who is enthralled by bad counselors, and who is contemptuous of the advice and opinions of the established members of the political order, who alienates former allies, and whose first reaction to any kind of resistance is to want to destroy it utterly. So it's not hard to see how one might overlay the flaws of King John onto Trump and emphasize the negative comparison. But I think you could give this same story to an ardent Trump supporter, or at least a detractor of Democrats, uh, and they could produce a second catalog of traits to critique the perceived failings of the Obama administration or a hypothetical Clinton White House. What are the Barons' main complaints about John? He taxes them too heavily. The country is crushed under burdensome taxes. And what else? He's beholden to foreign interests. He puts foreigners over native patriots and brings aliens into the country to usurp the roles of English folk. Um, And though it doesn't appear in this text, there's even a claim made by the chronicler Matthew Paris that John promised to convert to Islam in order to get support from the Almohad Caliph Muhammad al-Nasir. So as I was working on this text uh, and a few others, thinking about the more subtle kinds of political critique that might be in them, uh, I kept running into this kind of multiplicity of messaging. I had to ask myself, if someone hears this text, what connections are going to most stand out to them? Criticism of a vindictive and undiplomatic ruler? Or the not insignificant anti-immigrant message? The clarity with which an example from history seems to speak to you is almost certainly as much a product of the strength of your own preconceptions as it is of the intrinsic qualities of that example. Because the thing you are observing always contains more than you think it does, and more than you'd want it to. There are no perfect role models in this world outside of fiction, and there are no perfect historical parallels that will unequivocally validate one's own values. So as I went through a whole set of texts that I thought spoke to our present political debates and issues, that's what I found. Uh, It was easy to hear them speaking to the points I wanted them to speak to, but that required not hearing them speaking to other points that I wasn't trying to validate. So what do I do with these? Try to ignore or talk over the discourse that was less favorable to my own perspective? I don't want to do that. Uh, I also don't want to give in to the easy cynicism that would just write off the whole business because the Middle Ages were a terrible, terrible backwards time where everyone was wrong about just about everything and it's all useless, if not actively toxic, to a modern understanding of the world. Do I really just go, well, there's perspective A and there's perspective B and you can make up your own mind about which is more true for you? That just seems inadequate. And so I found myself kind of paralyzed for a while, uh, which certainly helped delay this episode, Um, though that was also exacerbated by a particularly brutal course prep load this semester. Uh, But anyway, I haven't reached any great moment of clarity or had an epiphany that settles this dilemma, so I'll just muddle on as I've been doing, focusing on the long view, I think, and the larger matrix of culture, rather than just trying to draw direct parallels with this week's latest furor. Um, And we'll see how it goes. Uh, I'm not going to try to be apolitical, but I'm also not going to go into all political commentary all the time. Politics may be unavoidable with a show so rooted in representations of history and ideology, uh, but it doesn't have to be all-consuming. So to wrap up, uh, I will get historical rather than literary to address one last little paradox of this war that you might have already picked up on. 
Uh, what do we make of the fact that the barons who complain that John has put continental foreigners in power over them pick out as their chosen challenger to John's crown a French prince, Prince Louis? We have a similar paradox in the Second Barons' War, uh, with the great champion of English nationalism being the French-born Simon de Montfort. One resolution to this oddity is offered in a recent article I came across by uh, a Czech scholar, uh, Jan Mali, or maybe it's Jan Mali, I don't speak Czech, uh, and, and in this article he argues that Prince Louis was never really considered a serious claimant to the English throne by the rebels who invited him over to support his cause. Uh, quote, if we assume that Louis was only one of all possible claimants to the throne, and by all means not the best one, and furthermore he was an heir to the French throne, it is easily acceptable that the only real reason for his invitation was to make him a military leader of the opposition to King John, with all consequences, especially financial. He could provide rebels with supplies and substantial financial aid. Uh, so, in other words, the rebel barons could reap the benefit of Louis' military skill and resources, and then once the war was won, they'd have ample justifications available for jettisoning him and supporting an alternative claimant. Ooh, isn't it tempting to draw those parallels, though? You know, a political faction decides to throw its support behind a figure that they don't really believe is going to be able to take power um, in order to take advantage of his resources and win some short-term gains. As history played out, though, and as we touched on above, John died, and with him died some of the primary grievances of many of the barons, and so many then chose to honor the line of succession and switch their loyalty over to Henry, hoping, too, that the young king might be molded into a better sort of ruler than his father. Prince Louis still had enough supporters to continue the war for another year or so, but it didn't go well. The Pope supported Henry's cause, and excommunications started to be thrown around, and so eventually a settlement was reached, and Louis returned to France, where, just a few years later, he became Louis VIII, King of France. Uh, he only reigned for a few years, a reign that doesn't seem to be particularly great either, um, before dying of the same thing that killed King John, dysentery, uh, at the age of 39. I don't think we'll be seeing much more of Louis, but we will be seeing more of John this year. Uh, though I have a lot more reading I need to do on him before I'm really ready to take a big bite out of that sandwich. Uh, in the meantime, we'll have a variety of texts to look at. Uh, I actually have some loose ends with Simon de Montfort that I'd like to tie up, uh, and also the excavation of the relics of Durham Cathedral, so we'll probably get uh, those pretty soon. I'm also looking into securing permissions to use some more recent translations of things, um, though I have to say I've been having a lot of trouble finding ways to get in contact with some of these translators. Um, technically, I think I have a pretty good fair use case for this show, uh, but I'd still prefer to get actual permission from living translators where possible. Uh, so if any of you circulate in the British medievalist circles and might help me reach out to some of the academic translators over there, um, I might be putting a call out on Twitter for help. Uh, also, if any of you are translators yourselves and think you have translations, published or unpublished, that you think might be good for this show, uh, do get in touch either by Twitter uh, at MDT Podcast or by emailing me um, at patrick at medievaldeathtrip.com. Uh, I can't presently offer an honorarium or anything, um, but you do get exposure. Uh, and I'd like to do a special episode about translation of medieval texts and its challenges and rewards at some point in the future. Um, so I might be on the lookout to recruit a few potential interview subjects, and that could be you. All right, it's a new year, so that means it's time for a new riddle. And here it is. 
Tell me, what are four things that never were and never will be full? So once again, tell me, what are four things that never were and never will be full? I'll have the answer next episode. Uh, I'll just forewarn you that probably through March, my production schedule uh, could be a bit shaky. I'm still shooting for every two weeks, um, but there will probably be a few extra weeks in between now and then uh, until we get to the other side of spring break. As always, you can be in touch with us through multiple venues. We're on Twitter at MDT Podcast, and you can email me uh, at Patrick at MedievalDeathTrip.com. Uh, and that .com address is, of course, our website, where you can get the references and further details about every episode of the show thus far. Starting with this episode, I'll also be posting the most recent three episodes to SoundCloud. Um, if you've been listening on another device, then that probably doesn't matter to you. And if you found this show through SoundCloud, then you don't need to be told that it's there now. So I don't know why I'm even announcing it, but such is life in our social media age. So here we go with 2017... I hope everyone had a good Valentine's Day, and sorry I didn't have a love-themed episode ready to drop for you. Um, but hey, I thought I'd be done with this one about three weeks back. Um, C'est la vie. But we do have some great stuff coming up this year, and I look forward to sharing it with you soon. So keep tuned, and thanks for listening. <laughs>